Let's pray together. Oh, Father, how we need this word that we stand forgiven at the cross because we are just loaded up with junk and sin and shame and guilt and alienation and anger. And Father, you know our hearts and that whenever our hearts condemn us, Christ is greater than our hearts. And so we pray through the power of the Spirit that there would be no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and that we would know it and feel it. And as we think of Paul laying there in that prison saying, don't be ashamed of me or of the testimony of the Lord. Father, that we would take it to heart. So Lord, open up our eyes that we may behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. Father, we ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. My mom and dad grew up in the South during the era of segregation and Jim Crow. They would tell you that their youth was colored by the racism that ran rife through the Deep South in, in those days. By the grace of God, they would also tell you that they had personally repudiated um, the racism that was so common in the culture by the time that they were adults. And certainly by the time my sister and I came along, their perspective was, was really clear. They taught us that racism was a sin and that the structures of racism that existed in our country, segregation, uh, separate water fountains, separate schools, um, separate places on the bus. My mom tells the stories of when she was a little girl, she'd get on the bus and grown women would, go, would, would give up their seats so she could sit down. This is what they grew up with, but they taught us that all of that Jim Crow garbage was just that, unchristian garbage. So that was my belief growing up. Um, that's what they, they taught me. And to my shame, that didn't keep me one day from coming home and telling my dad a joke that had a racial slur in it. I think I was in high school uh, in the time that it happened. I can't remember what the joke was. I don't remember what the slur was. I just know that it was some kind of a racially insensitive expression that was a part of some, some joke. I had no reason to think that it would be okay to say that kind of a thing to my dad. But there we were. We were by ourselves in the family room. We had been watching some TV. And I turn around to him and just try this offensive joke out on him just to get a laugh. I knew I was wrong, and I did it anyway. I did not go over with, with my dad. Um, he, he didn't laugh. And, and quite, in fact, it was quite the opposite of that. He looked at me. His eyes set on me with a stone-cold stare that went right through me. And I could feel his anger and his disappointment at the words that he had just heard coming out of his son's mouth. And he said something to me that I've, I've never forgotten. I can't remember the exact words, but it was to this effect. He said, are you going to go out on that football field every week with those other boys and pretend to be their friend and then come in here and talk to me that way in private? I felt completely and utterly ashamed. I felt lower than dirt. I needed to feel lower than dirt. 
He called my hypocrisy on the carpet, and he did two things in essentially shaming me like that. He fired a shot across the bow and let me know that that kind of talk wasn't going to be tolerated in, in the house, not even a one-off thing and a, a stupid joke. But he was also doing a second thing. He was letting me feel the full weight of his displeasure. Somebody might say, well, isn't that kind of mean? I don't think it's mean. I think it was the essence of love. I cared deeply what my dad thought about me. And I had just bared to him a spot of ugliness. And by letting me feel the full weight of his displeasure in that moment, he was taking a Brillo pad to my soul and he was scraping off some of the filth. I wanted to be my father's son. I didn't want to be the kind of guy who would tell a joke like that. So no, I don't think it was mean for him to let me know how he felt about that. I think it was love and I think it was good for me. Have you ever stopped to think about how powerful an emotion shame is and how it can move you and shape you for good or for ill. We could define shame like this. Shame is a painful emotion caused by the belief that one is, is or is perceived by others to be inferior or unworthy of affection or respect because of one's actions, thoughts, circumstances, or experiences. So shame is a painful emotion caused by the belief that one is or is perceived by others to be inferior or unworthy. Can you think of a time that you have felt in your life an experience of bona fide shame? Like you felt in your core, perhaps maybe from Someone else, you felt and experienced this sense that you were inferior or unworthy because of something you'd done, maybe something you said, or maybe something you are. I think in one sense you might argue that not all shame is equal. When you feel shame because of sin and it leads you to repentance and hope in Christ, I think that's one thing. But it's quite another thing to feel shame about something that is not shameful and that's not sinful, but which nevertheless makes you feel inferior or unworthy. It's one thing for me to flee from sin so as not to incur my father's displeasure. It's quite another thing to flee from righteousness so as not to incur a sinner's displeasure. How many of us have done the wrong thing or, or even refused to do the right thing because we fear being shamed by the opinion of the ungodly? How many of us have missed opportunities for witness or for ministry simply because of a desire to avoid being perceived as backward or as a kind of a rube? I submit to you that when you begin to feel and when you begin to fear the displeasure of sinners more than the displeasure of your father, the worst kind of shame has begun to control you. And it is a shame that can drive you to the depths of cowardice and to compromise if you let it. And you can't please God if you're constantly making decisions in your life based on what will incur the least amount of shame from friends and neighbors who don't know Jesus. You can't follow God if that's how you're living your life and making your decisions. I want you to open up your Bibles to 2 Timothy in chapter 1. And we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 18. And I want you to notice that in, in these 11 verses, three times Paul turns our attention to shame. In verse 8, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner. Verse 12, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And then if you look at verse 16, May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he was not ashamed of my chains. I think it's really clear what Paul is concerned about in this text. He's concerned about the kind of shame that puts us 
in a, a sort of straitjacket of fear and cowardice and that keeps us from righteousness because we're fearing the opinion or the displeasure of the wrong kind of people. And so Paul is going to lay down in this text three markers of how to be faithful to Christ without shame. And so he's going to talk about suffering without shame, ministry without shame, and he's going to give us some exemplars without shame. So in verses 8 through 12, suffering without shame. Verses 13 through 14, ministry without shame. And then verses 15 through 18, exemplars without shame. Look at verse 8, where he talks about suffering without shame. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Now, notice that this verse begins with a command. I think this text is is structured around the commands, one that appears here in verse 8 and then another that's going to appear in verse 13. But here's the first one. It's a command. It's prohibition, actually. He says, do not be ashamed. But notice there the word therefore that happens at the beginning. Therefore means that this command is grounded in what we studied the last time we were in in 2 Timothy chapter 1. It's grounded in what Paul said in verse 7. Look at verse 7. For God gave us a spirit not of fear but of power and of love and of self-control. And so here's the the logic here, moving from verse 7 to verse 8. Because God has not given you a spirit of cowardice, Timothy, because he's given you a spirit of power and discipline, Timothy, for that reason, do not be ashamed. The spirit of Almighty God will not coexist with that kind of shame. The Spirit of God drives out that kind of shame, Timothy, so you don't be ashamed. Do you see the connection between verses 7 and 8? It's all the difference in the world. You don't have to have shame because you have the Spirit in you. And there's power in you at work. Why would Timothy be tempted to be ashamed? Well, Timothy had at least two reasons. Number one, because of the gospel. Paul says, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. That's the gospel. And then he says, also because of me, the prisoner of the Lord. So Timothy would have felt some kind of temptation to be ashamed, not just of the gospel, but of Paul. Just like in our day, there were in Paul's day people who looked down on Christians for the message about Jesus. If you doubt that, look at how they shamed Paul when he was at Mars Hill with the philosophers. He began to preach to them and everything was great and he was smart and he was fitting in with them. Wonderful. But then he starts talking about the resurrection. And they said, get out of here. This is, who is this idle babbler? That's why Paul said that the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Apart from grace, the world thinks that we are rubes for believing what we believe. A guy died and came back alive? Paul knew that there was plenty of shame to go around for those who would believe and preach that gospel. Paul knew that. But Paul also knew that there was plenty of shame to go around for those willing to identify with gospel people. And Paul was a gospel person. And here Paul is in prison for preaching the gospel. And you got to think about how people would have viewed Paul sitting there in prison. I mean, we think of him in our mind's eye. He's got a little halo over his head laying there. He looks all noble and all of that. You think he looked noble to the average Roman in the first century? They would have seen this guy and they would have thought, who is this foolish man who's thrown his life away on a foolish message about a dead Jew? What a waste. Your average Roman probably wasn't looking at Paul and going, oh, wow, ooh, how sweet. How difficult would it be to associate with a man who was so shamed for the name of Christ? To associate with him would be to invite the shame upon yourself. And so Paul says to Timothy, don't be ashamed of me. Don't be ashamed of the message, but don't be ashamed of me. 
I think you have to let yourself get into the pathos of this moment that he is writing this. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me. His prisoner. It's striking that Paul doesn't call himself Rome's prisoner. <clears throat> he says he calls himself the prisoner of the Lord. Don't miss the significance of that. Paul did not regard his shame as his own shame. He regarded his shame as Christ's shame. And Paul belonged to Jesus, not to the Romans. If they despised his message, it was because they despised his master, Jesus. And so Paul never saw his sufferings as anything other than the sufferings of Christ being lived out over again in his body. Remember Galatians 2.20, For I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul thinks he's just living Jesus' life over again. In his ministry, Jesus has suffered. Paul says, I'm going to suffer. They shame Jesus, they're going to shame me. Paul says, I'm, I'm his disciple. This is the path I'm walking. So he's living out Christ's shame over again. And he's saying to Timothy, don't be ashamed of me. I'm the Lord's prisoner. It's the Lord whom we serve together. In other words, being ashamed of Paul, the Lord's prisoner, is tantamount to being ashamed of Jesus. You see this? The one for whom Paul was imprisoned. It's as if Paul is saying, look, Timothy, I know the temptation to avoid shame, but don't avoid this shame. I know that your associating with me might implicate you in my shame. I know that, but don't run from me right now. I'm the Lord's prisoner. We're servants of the king together. Don't be ashamed of the gospel or of me. How do you not be ashamed? He says it in the second part of verse 8. Share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. You want to prove you're not ashamed? You share in the suffering. Not just my suffering, of the suffering of Jesus. You share in the suffering. So here, here's a good spot just to stop and ask yourself this question. Could you have done it? Could you have traveled to the capital city of the mightiest empire that the world had ever known? This is like the New York City of the day, right? Could you have gone into the city of the mightiest empire the world had ever known, gone there at great expense? Could you have made a beeline to the man whom the Romans regarded as human garbage? The guy who by this time was a fleshy mass of scars laying in the filth of a Roman prison, bound with chains around his legs and arms. Would you implicate yourself in that man's shame? If you did go to him, you might stand to lose something. Would you be willing to put it all on the line to go to him, just to minister to his, his need? If you're wondering whether you, you could or couldn't do it, Paul gives you every reason why you should do it. In verses 9 and 10, that's what verses 9 and 10 are all about. It's a litany of the things that have been accomplished by the power of God. The controlling interest here is not the shame that Rome is trying to heap on Paul. The controlling interest here is the power of God at work in Paul and that Paul believes is at work in Timothy. And so he says, suffer together for the gospel by the power of God. And then he says, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Timothy, if you're tempted to be shamed, if you're tempted, if you're tempted to shrink back at this point, you need to think about the God who saved you who didn't give you a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-discipline. This God saved you. He called you. God broke through your hard heart by effectually calling you to himself. He did it not because you deserved it or because you were asking for it, because you weren't. 
It was not because of your works, Timothy. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were not looking for God, but he certainly was looking for us. And it says here, because of his own purpose and grace. Not because of some latent power or potential he saw in us. It was all about his power and what his power could potentially do through us. Listen, we are in the same place Timothy's in as Paul's writing to him. You and I are Christians not because we first loved God, but because he first loved us. You are a Christian not because you're smarter and more spiritually sensitive than your lost neighbor. You are a Christian because God purposed to save you before you even knew him. God had designs on you. And this text says that God's grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Think about that. That means that before you were born, before your grandparents were born, before Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were born, before Adam was born or made from the ground, or before the ground was made, or the world was made, or the universe was made and everything in it, before anything was in existence, before the ages began in eternity past, God purposed to send his son Jesus to save you. Before you ever sinned, God's predestining goodness was aimed squarely at you to save you. That's what the power of God did for you in Christ Jesus. That's why he's saying you suffer together for the gospel by the power of God who saved us like this. The power of God did all that for you from before the foundation of the world, but he didn't leave it as some sort of, you know, unrealized theory of salvation before the world began. No, he made a world. And what did he do in that world? Verse 10. He saved us, he called us, verse 10, and which has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. He didn't just plan to send his son for you. He sent his son for you. Jesus died on a Roman cross to pay the penalty for your sin. And then God's power raised him from the dead and brought eternal life to you through the gospel. That's what it means that he abolished death. When he got up out of that grave, death was done. And he brought eternal life out of that grave with him and offers it to anyone who would have him. And that message and that reality is real. How are you going to be ashamed? How are you going to care what anybody else thinks except that Savior? How can anybody's opinion matter except for Him? How can anybody's displeasure matter to you except for God's displeasure? Paul says that God has brought this salvation to you through the gospel, verse 11, for which, by which he means, for which gospel I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. Paul has, is specially commissioned by God as an apostle, as an authority. And he's not just sitting on a throne somewhere uh, meditating. He's been made a preacher and a teacher, which means he is on the road. And he is bringing this message to the nations, and he is suffering for it. And that's why he says in verse 12, which is why I suffer as I do. You want an explanation for my shame? It's because of this message, of this Savior. From, from before the ages began, God sent and was planning to send him to us. So that's why I'm suffering. But look what he says. But I am not ashamed. I got these chains around. The chains are on my arms and legs. I'm sitting here in this prison. I'm not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day that which has been entrusted to me. So the power of God made Paul an apostle and a preacher, and that same power is now sustaining Paul in his misery. 
And it's the very power of God that's keeping him from being ashamed. How? Because he's confident that even if they take everything away from him, they've already got his freedom, supposedly his, his dignity, but even if they take his life from him, Paul knows God is going to raise him up. That's why it says, I'm convinced he's able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. I think he's, the what has been entrusted to me is referring to his life. And God is going to guard his life until that day. What day? The last day when Jesus steps out of heaven on a cloud and says, come forth. And the dead in Christ rise first. And then those of us that remain will be caught up with them in the air. We believe in the resurrection of the dead. And there is nothing that they can take away from us that God won't give back to us and then some. So he knows God's going to raise them up. Paul knows that his life is not ultimately subject to the whims of his Roman captors and all their pride. His life is hidden with Christ in God, and if they strike him down, God will raise him up. Everything he loses will be given back to him, and then some in the last day. So he's not shamed by them. I'm not ashamed. He can't be shamed by them. He has the spirit of Christ animating him. And it's not a spirit of cowardice, but of power and of love and of self-control. And it's the power of God from all eternity, now at work in him, calling him home. He's not ashamed to be in that cell. His suffering in the present time is not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed in him on that last day. How could he be ashamed by any of that? Your reaction to the world's shame will reveal what you believe to be most ultimate. It will reveal whether you really believe that your life is hidden with Christ in God or whether you believe that your life consists in the good opinion of God's enemies. Think about that. It's amazing to think how many Baptist churches across the South bowed the knee to Jim Crow during the heat of the Civil Rights Movement in the 1960s. In his book, Bloodlines, Pastor John Piper tells the story of the Southern Baptist Church that he was a member of and that he grew up in in Greenville, South Carolina. And in 1962, his church voted to do what many southern white churches voted to do during that time. They voted as a congregation. It's, it's hard to imagine this now, but this happened in churches across the deep south. They voted as a congregation not to allow their church services to be integrated. No black people. They took a vote, agreed together, as that no black brothers and sisters would be allowed into the sanctuary for worship. And... The, the pretense was the only reason they would come would be to stir up trouble and to do politics, and we're, we're here to worship, so they, they can't come. And they all voted for it. And uh, Piper says that he thinks his mother was the only one who voted against it. His mother, who, who actually was from the north. She was from Pennsylvania, I think. Later that same year, in 1962, uh, John Piper's sister was to be married in, in that very church, same year that they voted. The Pipers invited all their friends and family, including an African-American woman named Lucy, who used to help his mom clean the house on Saturdays and who had become a dear family friend. And so, so they, the Pipers invited Lucy. They invited her whole family to the service. And Lucy and her whole family showed up. For, for the service. And, and Piper says that as they came up to the church, he could only imagine how much courage it must have taken them to come to that segregated church. But they came. And he says when they entered the church, it was this palpable tension just settled in the foyer when everybody saw them there. The church had just voted not to integrate the congregation. Would these people be welcome or not? And the, the ushers didn't know what to do. And so finally, one of the ushers was about to, to seat them in the balcony. And, and nobody, the balcony had hardly been used in that church since the church was built. So it was like putting them in the back of the bus of the church, right? One of the ushers was about to take them up, up to the balcony. 
And then Piper says, this is what happened next. I'm just going to read to you what he says. He says, my mother, all five feet, two inches of her, intervened and by herself took them, Lucy's family, took them by the arm and seated them on the main floor of the sanctuary. She was, under God, the seed of my salvation in more ways than one. As I watched that drama, I knew deep down that my attitudes were an offense to my mother and to her God. Piper talks in the book about having um, racist attitudes when he was a young, young man. I knew deep down that my attitudes were an offense to my mother and, and to her God. Oh, how thankful I am for the conviction and courage of my gutsy, Yankee fundamentalist mother. <laughs> Amen. You know, it's one thing to say you're not a racist. It's another thing to step out in front of all that racial shame to stand with someone that you love. And that's what she did. You know, I had them read the story of Jonathan and David and Saul um, earlier in the service. And you remember what happened with Jonathan and David and Saul. David is anointed as the next king over Israel. Saul is the current king of Israel, and God has rejected Saul. And the rest of the story as it unfolds in Samuel is, who's going to be allied to David? Who's going to be allied to Saul? The good guys are wearing white hats, and they're allied to David. The bad guys, black hats, are allied to Saul, right? Jonathan has a lot to lose by associating with David. In fact, the kingdom would have been his, supposedly. He was the son of Saul. He was the son of the king. He had a lot, he had a lot to lose, and instead of dissociating himself with David, he made a covenant with David and said, this is going to be my best friend, and Saul finds out about it, and Saul tried to kill his own son. And he says, what a shame. You son of a perverse and a rebellious woman, you have brought shame. And so he is, his father is heaping this displeasure on him, trying to keep him from doing the right thing. Could you do the same if you had to risk being shamed for doing the right thing? Could you risk being shamed for the sake of the gospel? That time in the office when everybody's I don't know, running down the Lord Jesus, <laughs> maybe blaspheming. Not that you have to be a jerk or anything, but can you? is there a point that you could speak up and say, he's actually really good to me. Here's why. Could you ally yourself to him in those moments? Could you risk being implicated in someone else's shame for the sake of the gospel? Somebody else is being <clears throat> made fun of, punished, losing because of the gospel. Would you associate with them? <coughs> Excuse me. Could you associate with them and let their shame be yours? You must. We must. We can't be ashamed. We have the power of God at work in us. We have the promises of God guaranteeing us a better possession and an abiding one. And the enemies of God can never take those things away from us. And if we believe that in the crucial moments, we will speak up. We will do it. Why would you fear their shame? Don't let the threat of, of their displeasure rule your life. Let the pleasure of God be everything to you. So Paul's giving us here a model and a word about suffering with shame, and he's telling Timothy, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be ashamed of me. So he tells us how to suffer without shame, but he also speaks about ministry without shame. Look at verse 13. 
in verse 13. He's just said, suffer with me. Now he says, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. For Timothy, ministry without shame means being willing to associate with and to suffer with Paul. But in these two verses, it also means being willing to stay faithful to Paul's message. Paul calls that message the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me. You're going to be saying the stuff you learned from me. Of course you're going to be associated with me. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Paul is essentially saying you have to follow the pattern of sound words, which means you preach these words and you live these words, and you have to guard that teaching, which means you have to stand against false teachers. So ministry without shame means following the gospel and opposing those who undertake to undermine the gospel. Following the gospel must happen, he says, in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, which means in order to preserve Paul's teaching, you have to have faith towards God and you have to have love for one another. What's animating you is faith towards God and love for other people. Okay, you got a large heart for people. You want good for people. You're cheering for people. In fact, when you hear Paul saying to Timothy, don't be ashamed of me. Don't think of it like, oh, I'm so needy. Think of it like, I'm pulling for you, Timothy. Don't be ashamed of me or of the gospel. I'm pulling for you. When you love somebody, that's what it means, right? When you're following the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, that means you're pulling for people. You want the best for people. Guarding the deposit can only happen, he says here, through the power of the Holy Spirit indwelling him. So following and guarding means staying allied to Jesus' word even if you are shamed for it. You know, my kids love the old Disney movie uh, Robin Hood. You remember that one? The old uh, animated version. We, we've, I don't know how many times we've seen that thing. Um, we've seen it a lot. It's a, it's a great story. It's a timeless story from English folklore. Maybe you've seen the old Kevin Costner version from the 90s or the, what was it, Errol Flynn in the 30s, Douglas Fairbanks in the 20s. I mean, this story has been done over and over in film and in literature. But you remember the story. Here's King Richard the Lionheart is away on a crusade. And while he's gone, there's this usurper, the sheriff of Nottingham, who undermine, undermines the just rule of Richard in order to oppress and plunder the poor. But there are a group of bandits and outlaws who are still loyal to King Richard. And he's been gone a long time. But they're going to be loyal to him. And they are led by this master bowman named Robin Hood. Yes, Robin Hood is stealing from the sheriff to give to the poor, but really what he's doing is he's continuing his allegiance to Richard. That's what the whole thing is about. He's showing his allegiance to Richard by doing what Richard himself would do if he were there and what Richard is going to do when he gets there. And by doing this, Robin has to live with the shame of being an outlaw and a bandit. But he and his merry men, they're merry men, by the way, they're not dour and unhappy men. They're merry men. They wear this shame as a badge of honor in order to show their fealty to their coming king. They know they're right. <laughs> they have the courage of their convictions. They know that when Richard returns, everything's going to change. Right now, everything's upside down, but it's all going to be turned right side up when he gets back. Those who are being shamed now will be honored then. And so they wait and they follow the way of their king until he returns. Do you know the best way to show that you're not ashamed of the gospel? You've got to keep doing the things your king would be doing if he were here in the flesh. Keep preaching the message to others. Keep caring for and associating yourself with other people who love that gospel. That means you have to love this message and you have to love these people. Take a look to your left and to your right. Take note of these, your brothers and sisters. You may be called on one day to bear their reproach. And somebody might write you a soft letter one day saying, don't be ashamed of me. 
if it ever comes to that, you remember that you came here week after week worshiping the same Savior and confessing the same gospel. And you remember that God made you to love one another by standing for this gospel together, no matter what comes. So suffering with shame and ministry, suffering without shame and ministry without shame is going to look like that. But the final thing is, are these exemplars without shame in verses 15 through 18. Paul says, You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. So, so Paul's saying in his own life, he had known people who have done to him what he is t- telling Timothy not to do right now. Paul has known people, people who were supposed brothers in Christ, people who saw his shame and they left him. Paul says, all who were in Asia turned away from me. We don't really know who these people are. I think it's, it's, it's probably a group of Christians from Asia who were in Rome but who skipped out on Paul when, they, when he needed them most. Two guys in particular, probably the leaders, Vagellus and Hermogenes, left him when Paul needed him, needed them. How, how would you like to have your name in Scripture for this reason? You were the rat that got going when the going got tough. You caved and were the coward. You left Paul when he needed you most because you were ashamed of him. Nobody names their kid Phagellus or Hermogenes. <laughs> but verse 16, we need some Onesiphoruses. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus. For he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered me at Ephesus. This is a guy we want to meet in heaven, right? What kind of a guy comes looking for trouble for the sake of the gospel? He comes to Rome. He comes to Rome. He can't find Paul. He turns the town upside down until he finds Paul. And then he comes and associates with him and potentially implicates himself in Paul's shame. And Paul says, he often refreshed me, which means he ministered to my need when I was here. Notice he says in verse 16, may the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus. That little detail ought to catch your eye. Why is he praying for the mercy, God's mercy to come to to Onesiphorus' family? That's who the household is. Onesiphorus' family need mercy. Onesiphorus was the one that came to minister to him. What about his family? I think Paul's wish for mercy on his family means that both Onesiphorus and his family had to pay a price for dad's association with this crazy guy, Paul. That's what that means. Some commentators think that maybe Onesiphorus is already dead because it says, may the Lord grant him mercy on that day. It's already conceiving of when the Lord would would raise him up. And so maybe he's praying for the family now that's left behind. Their faithful father is, is dead. It's hard to know, but what is, what we do know is that there was a price for associating with Paul and Onesiphorus' family apparently had to pay it. So here's the next hard question. Could you be not ashamed of the gospel and of his prisoner if it costs your family? Last week during our prayer time in Sunday school, one of the brothers in the class asked us to pray for his sister. She's on the mission field in a remote place in Africa with her husband. She's eight months pregnant, I believe, in a place where there's no medical facilities. And so we prayed for her because they're about to transport her by car for an eight-hour drive over, think of a remote place in Africa and what the, the, the roads might be like. Think about that for eight hours, eight months pregnant. Would you take an eight-hour trip on our roads for eight hours when you're eight months pregnant? Probably not. 
Can you imagine eight hours of bumping and jolting on bad roads? And that's just one experience. It's one thing to ask a man to make sacrifices for the sake of the gospel. It's another thing to ask a man's family to make those sacrifices. How many of us would be willing to do that? Onesiphorus thought it was worth it. This is the hard part of this message. At least it is for me in my heart. Because we are so tempted to idolatry in our comforts and our things. And we have got to be willing to say that all of our lives belong to Christ. Our lives are hidden with Christ in God. Nothing is ours. None of our possessions, none of our loved ones. Who knows what providence has in store for us? The essence of Christianity is the conviction that no matter what we lose, we have everything if we have Jesus. That's the essence of it. And that's the only way that you can suffer like this. That's the only way that you can experience shame like this and not completely crumple up in a little pile of self-pity and fear. And here Paul is sitting in this prison cheering Timothy on. Come on, Timothy. I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed. Oh, God, give us the courage of our convictions. Paul has prayed for mercy on the household of Onesiphorus. Do you believe the mercy of God is good enough for you? And whatever sacrifices you or your family may be called on to make. I think we're seeing in Paul just an echo of what Jesus prayed or what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 7. Remember that? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Paul had received mercy from Onesiphorus, and now he's praying for Onesiphorus and his household to receive mercy. Would the mercy of God to you be enough if it became costly to you to extend mercy to others for the sake of the gospel? Let's not pretend these are easy questions. Or that, but these are, things, these are the questions we have to face, right? Don't we have to think about this and do this? Paul tells us how to suffer without shame, ministry without shame. And then he gives us these exemplars. Onesiphorus and, Onesiphorus and his family who suffered without shame. I want to finish by showing you something in Hebrews 10. Quickly, everybody turn to Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10 in verse 32, just really quickly. I want you to see this verse because this verse is commending believers who did the very thing that Paul is calling on Timothy to do. Verse 32, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. So these were Christians who knew how to suffer. But look why their suffering came to them. And sometimes being partners with those so treated. Meaning, here are some Christians who were suffering. They had some brothers and sisters over here who saw their suffering and came to them. And because they came to them and associated with them, they started suffering. You were partners with those so treated. How do you know? For you had compassion on those in prison. There were brothers and sisters in the jail. And instead of leaving them there to languish, some brothers and sisters from the church came to the prison. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. They came after your stuff because you associated with them. They took your stuff. And the thing that's breathtaking is the writer of Hebrews says, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. These were people who were confident and happy in God, and that's why they were joyful when they took their stuff. 
since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. They can take our stuff. We've got better stuff coming. That's why they did this. Could you accept that, the plundering of your property for the sake of a brother or sister in Christ? How do you do that? You do it because you, be, you believe you have a better possession and, a, and an abiding one. That's the only way you're going to be able to endure shame if you know you have something better. And in fact, they may try to heap the shame, but you won't feel the shame. You know, when my dad stared me down that day after I told that foolish joke, I felt his displeasure in that moment. I, I surely did. And I felt shame. But I really didn't have to fear his shame. You know why? Because I knew that I was his son and I knew that he loved me. And I knew that he wasn't ever going to give up on me. I never, ever, even for a minute, questioned that. And the truth is, that's the kind of love that God has for sinners. If you are here this morning and you are feeling the weight of shame for some sin that you've committed or maybe you're feeling some shame for some sin somebody else committed against you, you need to know that God is in the business of removing shame. That's what he does. Romans 5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given us. God has put flesh and blood on his love for us. He sent his son for us. He took our shame upon himself. All the Father's displeasure because of our sin, Jesus endured on the cross so that we could be forgiven and be shame-free. God offers that shame-free life in Christ to anyone. Not by works, not because of something that you are, but because of something he did for you. All you have to do is receive it by repentance and faith. Let me pray for you. Father, I pray if there is anyone here who doesn't know you, who is laboring under the weight of shame and need it removed, I pray that you would help them to repent of sin and to trust in Jesus, our great shame remover. So, Lord, I pray you would do this work among us. And I pray for your people. And I pray for me. That we won't be a people who talk a big talk, but we will live this out in the nitty-gritty details and conflicts of our lives. Help us, Father. We pray that you do it in Jesus' name. Amen.